Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. Our guest today comes from higher education. Nathan Long is the president of Saybrook University, a regional nonprofit institution that focuses on social transformation. Now, together, we'll talk about the need for more collaboration in higher education, not only across faculty, but also across systems, students, and communities. We'll also talk about the need to redefine student success and how the pandemic affected the students' approach to higher education, prompting leaders to ask themselves, has higher education stifled the individuality of its students? Now, before we get started, click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis so that you can stay in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Thank you for joining us today, Nathan. Great to have you. Hey, Glenn. Great to have you or be here with you and uh, looking forward to our conversation uh, today. Thank you. Oh, you're very, very welcome, Nathan. So, you know, in the age of personalization, as we discussed earlier, uh, before going live here, Nathan, it's about seeing and knowing the individuals that you're leading and serving. So let's take a moment to explore this process by getting to know you as an individual. So why is it that you find your most authentic self during the act of writing? So for me, I find that writing is the one place that no one interrupts me, that no one gets in my space for whatever reason. I, I can tune things out. I can home in, tunnel in, and dig into those things that are you know, of deepest concern to me or that I really want to celebrate that I couldn't just say to the, the collective crew, if you will, you know, for fear of sounding overly egotistical or out, outrageous even. Um, for me, writing is, is liberating. And, and I find that the more I do it, the more liberated I feel. I also find it's a, a real act of mindfulness for me in terms of just being in the present moment with myself and my thoughts to give me that, that space of, of just saying, this is your time to express yourself in the most authentic way possible. Um, and, and so for me, writing is that op opportunity for self-exploration, for creativity. Um, and it's, it's been a vital force for me. And just, I'd say everything from settling my nerves to thinking through some really sticky problems to celebrating the joys of my family and the, the people around me. Uh, and, and, and also the, uh, the sadness and issues that have come out even during this pandemic, it's been a great resource for me. You know, that's, I love how you said that. And when you said about mindfulness and, and being present, you know, I've always learned that for me, writing 
uh, puts me in a zone where my brain takes me to places I've never been before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I only share that because people always ask me about how did, you know, have you written a book or why have you written books and why do you write so much? I, I find that, to your point, that uh, writing takes me to places where uh, my mind has always been, but maybe I haven't caught up to it. Think about that one for a moment. So why do you love to explore and solve for I can't or this won't work? Uh, instead, looking at possibilities, what 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 drives you there? Uh, yeah, it's an it's kind of a, an interesting, good, and I'll I'll call it a curveball question. I wasn't quite anticipating that, so um, it's a good one. And I think for me, not to get into all the depth psychology of my childhood and my my own uh, you know academic and professional journey, but I I think as a musician. Uh, I was a classically trained musician in uh, undergraduate work and did a little bit of professional musician work. Hmm. A lot of what I did was solving for what I couldn't do. So whether it was a series of scale uh, scales that I was working on or a, a piece that you know, I needed to solve for the, the complexity or the technicality of a piece. I, I won't put it all on music, but you kind of go into that experience, that training with solving for I can't. But on the other side for me is the look at what I was able to do or look what I was able to solve for. So it's the the outcome was a what it was maybe a beautiful melody or a, a an outcome that that really inspired the listener in some some meaningful way. And so for me, I really need to get out on paper and this is where the writing process helps me I guess, try to solve for I can, because I don't always solve for it, Glenn. I'll, I'll be very candid there. Um, it helps me really think through the various complexities, the various uh, component parts of a, of a problem so that I can tackle it both tactically and strategically. So a case in point is, um, you know, every institution has personnel issues. So for me, when those personnel issues get particularly uh, sticky, thickety, whatever you want to call it. Um, I need to think through all of the elements that go into that. Like what, what are the, the particular fallouts for that individual? What are the, the issues that the institution might face? What are the issues that our staff and our other uh, students might face if we're dealing with a personnel issue or matter that's of you know, particular sensitivity? And I'm able to to dig into that and play with that a little bit in the writing space, in a private space that I often can do even in talking with colleagues, because where I spitball in a group of people, it's not what necessarily will be the outcome, if that makes sense. But in writing, I'm safe enough to spitball enough, figure out kind of the opportunities and the challenges associated with it, and then ideally come up with the best possible option or options uh, to present to the group, to a smaller cadre or what have you. So for me, that's what, and, and it's not just about work. It could be at home, you know, like um, our finances, you know, for a long time, we, you know, we, we struggled as a couple in early, in our early marriage and, and still are, you know, have been dealing with some of those financial issues uh, to this day. But I, I was able to sit down in, in my own thoughts and chart out a, a course of action for myself and our family over time to really think that through in ways and also address some of the 
the behaviors that were informing uh, the, you know, the, I guess, bad decision-making that we were making, I was making in terms of our own financial future. And we're able to write the ship you know, a lot more than we would be if we were just spitballing over a glass of wine on the couch, you know, on a Saturday night, trying to figure it all out. So um, I don't know if that's helpful or if that addresses the exact rudiments of your question, but for me, that, that writing process, again, it's, it's liberating in that sense that I'm able to really dig in and, and find maybe some answers that'll help me get to that next level, if you will, or next phase. You know, Nathan, I think it was beautifully articulated. I mean, fundamentally, maybe it's a lesson for all of us that we need to slow down, uh, put more things in yeah. writing, gather our thoughts. I mean, we're, uh, we've been trained through standardization to go, 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 go. And we don't take enough time to stop, reflect, put our, our thoughts in, uh, not just in writing, but organize them so that when we express ourselves with our teams uh, across our institutions and enterprises that, you know, we're thinking uh, strategically uh, ba based on the benefit of the whole, because oftentimes uh, it's easy to think much easier to think about ourselves than the whole. But I think when we stop and reflect, we, we recognize that we can change our own narratives if we don't allow uh, the chaos of the day to control the way we're leading in our thinking. So I think it was very well put. And um, so I guess this takes us to, you know, why do you believe that there's nothing more inspiring that, than co-collaborating and co-creating? And as you think about this question, uh, think about this in terms of uh, the future of higher education. I mean, why do you think we need more co-creating uh, to get it right? And, uh, and why is this inspiring? So in all candor, I, I never, you know, for, I, if you think back or if I think back rather 10, 15 years ago, I was a goal owner. Like, I don't need to co-collaborate. I know how to do this. I, I've got all the tools up here. I've got a team that knows how to do it as an institution of higher learning. You know, we've got this, we can make it happen and, and we'll, we'll force our way into the, um, into the pantheon of colleges and universities and make it happen. Um, the reality was much more severe. <laughs> so what I learned is, is that's not always the case. And while we, in, in my previous institution, for example, in, in, in this you know, wonderful place, we punched through a whole environment of competition uh, and, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know if you've ever read the book called Blue Ocean Strategy. They call it, you know, the red oceans of higher ed. We, I mean, we're playing in the same space and we, we, we won that piece of the pie. But at the end of the day, I'm not so certain that that was the ultimate best thing that we could have done for our students and for the people in the community long term. Now, the institution to this day is doing wonderfully. It's a phenomenal place. So I'm not knocking what the institution is about, but it was how we got to where we mm. ended up, right? It, it's more about the journey rather than the destination. So if you think about the co-collaboration piece and why for me, that's the most inspiring over my years as a college president, I've kind of evolved from this go it alone strategy to a let's bring as many people into this. Let's trust one another and, and trust the people we've hired 
to do the good work that we're, you know, seeking to do in service to students and to our greater community. And what that means for me is that it looks like institutions working together across systems, across faculty, across students, across communities, taking the competition piece. And yeah, that's important. We want to be competitive. Competition helps create excellence, but, but also that collaboration piece creates capacity. It creates opportunity for more people to gain from um, what is out there. And you, you look at there's a, a wonderful place uh, or I guess an entity called the University Innovation Alliance. Um, and it's the large public institutions that are out there like Arizona State University and Ohio State University. They're an example of what can be done well when looking at student success and retention. When you look at the system that we're a part of, uh, Saybrook University is part of a system of other colleges and universities. And I'm not shilling for the system here, but rather to say that we joined a system that is predicated on what we call radical cooperation. So all nonprofit institutions, all working together to say, how can we leverage more resources, more opportunities to enhance and better the student experience, to support the students in getting the degree that they want, getting the job that they want, and finding greater satisfaction in the life that they're planning for them and their family and within their community. So it has a bigger effect, I think, when you focus on the co-collaboration or the radical cooperation rather than trying to go it alone. And so I'll, I'll add one more piece here. I, I, I know we, we've got a lot of road to cover here, but the exciting piece here for me is that Saybrook has been wildly successful because of that adoption of radical cooperation and collaboration. And you're also seeing, conversely, a lot of institutions out there, these small nonprofit privates that are just struggling, closing down on the verge, um, that are not serving their students or their communities as ably as they could, even with the beautiful missions they have. Because of this need to this almost um, I won't call it pathological, but it, it almost feels that way. It's a pathological need to be independent and go it alone. Um, when, in fact, if you join forces together, you can accomplish much more. Uh, and, and on behalf of the people you're serving and the mission you're serving. Well, I mean, this is why we, we realize that today inclusion must be a growth strategy. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, what we're saying here is that we need to learn how to co-design uh, the future together because we just can't go at it alone. Go at it right. alone, and this is a fundamental lesson in leadership. You cannot go at it alone, and I think we've learned the hard way. And now that uh, we're, we're seeing the the age of personalization reaching its tipping point, now that the individual has been unleashed, and it's clear that they're the ones that are influencing the ways we should be learning, working, leading, and conducting business. Um, how do you think that Saybrook is uh, measuring and defining student success? Because clearly uh, the metrics have changed since uh, the pandemic. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think we're still a work in progress. If I said we've arrived there and we had a st any student listening to this, they might say, yeah, but we, we go a little bit 
further. We could get a little bit better or a lot better. Um, but I think where the the basic rudiments of our recent successes over the last three, four, five, six years has been around like high engagement with our students. So not just faculty, but that's important. But student affairs staff, our staff, our leadership team members, you know, really engaging with students in mindful, thoughtful, engaged ways. What is needed? How can we be of service? How can we help? Uh, Carl Rogers, who's one of our founders and, uh, and a preeminent, so, uh, I'm sorry, an eminent psychologist uh, and counselor uh, researcher, really noted uh, that his main way of engaging was, how can I help? And if you go into a conversation with that mindset, that, that creates higher engagement versus here's what we're going to tell you and here's what we're going to do. And let me tell you, Glenn, I... Seven years ago, when I came to Saybrook, I was more in that camp. I wasn't a Rogerian, if you want to call it that. I was more of, here's what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to do it. And, and our faculty, students, and staff were kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure that's going to work all that well. So let, let's talk this through a little bit. Like, we're a humanistic organization or institution. So I think that high engagement piece comes from, a, again, that co-collaboration of thought of, of, of questioning of how can we be of service? I think the other kind of boilerplate stuff is around continuous enrollment through graduation. Like my commitment to our students who come in and our collective commitment is really around, we need you to stay enrolled. Not, it's not just a revenue thing. It's, it's to benefit you so that you can get in, get your degree and get out into another job that meets the interests that you're trying to cultivate for yourself. And so I think those are some of the key pieces that we, you know, need to uh, continue to double down on. And, and, you know, they're not necessarily sexy things, but they're important things to the, the life of the institution. And I think those are all pieces uh, that are important. And then of course, uh, you know, I guess the last thing I would, add to this is that uh, we're a virtual institution and a graduate level institution. And some, some, some individuals might say, well, that that's really way different than what uh, traditional colleges and universities are dealing with. I would say that we're becoming the traditional, you know, the virtual institutions are becoming the, the traditional approach in, in higher education. And we need to cultivate the outside experience as well for students supporting them in that, whatever that means for them but also creating those opportunities. And so I think when, when you talk about what, you know, what does that look like in terms of, uh, you know, how we as a university uh, you know, define student engagement and centricity and all those uh, important aspects, that's key is that extracurricular or co-curricular experience. So what do you think the student wants more today than maybe they did 18 months ago? Great question. I can tell you uh, that I think I know. I'm going to tell you. Yeah. I think we hold on. Okay. There we go. We're back on. Sorry about okay. that. All right. It's all right. So, so what, what do you think they want the most? What do students want the most? So 
I think the, the, the short answer to this is I don't think we know just yet. And I don't think I know just yet exactly what they know. And I think it's our job to dig in deeper on that. What, what we're getting a picture or glimpse of at the present moment is that students want, they don't want the glitzy things that come with, you know, the student life centers and all that stuff. They may want that or think they want that. But what our students are wanting is greater human connection. And that doesn't necessarily mean hand-to-hand, face-to-face, in the same room, although that's important. It means vital, authentic connection, whether it's virtual, whether it's on ground, whether it's in the lecture hall. And, and that's a different approach, I think, or a different understanding, I think, of what students want than what a lot of administrators are saying they think students want. Can you go deeper into that? I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of what that means. So if you look at where institutions of higher learning are focusing a lot of their expenditures right now, it's on the physical plant, the infrastructure, meaning student life centers, the recreation centers, the, the big stadiums, the, the, you know, all the things and trappings that many of us are used to when we think of the beautiful four-year institutions that are out there. But what I'm talking about, Glenn, is that despite all of that, many of our students come to colleges and universities often feeling alienated from their communities. They feel disconnected. And in fact, if you you look at our employees and our, our staff, there is a sense of disconnection often. Now, what data do I have to, to prove that 100%? I don't necessarily, but I think if you, you dig around and you start looking at the higher ed presses and you, uh, you're talking to students elsewhere, and I've been in this business for a long time, it's not the stuff that matters. It's not the materialistic stuff. It's that one-on-one engagement, that deep, abiding, authentic connection with their faculty, with the staff that are supporting them in the administration, but also with each other so that they have safety and they can explore intellectually and socially and psychologically the things that are very important to them. So Nathan, why is it that you think that higher education has historically stifled the individuality of its students? Because I think this is where we're going. Okay, I got you, I got you. Well, I don't, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think it's just as simple as higher ed stifling the creativity. I think we all have a hand in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think society has a hand in it as much as higher education. Higher education as a collective industry is a reflection of our society, the needs, the wants, the desires. So you, you look at the pressures that are put on higher educational institutions. They're, they're responding to a marketplace that says they want these things, and then they get there, and then it's not necessarily what they thought they wanted, right? Um, But to answer your question, I think where higher education has played a part in this is that there's been, uh, and this gets to your point around personalization, right? Uh, There's been a focus on sort of a a mass approach to a mass production approach to higher education versus a, a, a focus on how do we maximize the individual student experience to ensure not only that they have a great college experience, whether it's an undergraduate or postgraduate work, but also have a great intellectual journey along the way. I don't know that anyone ever asked me, how's your intellectual journey going? Uh, I, you know, I never had that. I mean, 
Neither um, did I. <laughs> they're like, are you alive? You know, you didn't get drunk this last weekend. That's a great thing if you were an undergrad or you 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 pass your final exams and and you you put some weight on. Okay, great. But never once did I have anyone, you know, really invested uh, until I got into graduate school and I had that one-on-one mentoring with someone who took me under their wing and said, Hey, I care about you. I want you to be successful. And, uh, you know, how, how are you doing intellectually? What can I do to support you? And I think if institutions could do more of that, how can I help? How can we help rather than here's what we're going to give to you to do what you need to do. We could go a lot further in the work that we're doing to support students and not stifle creativity, but unleash it. Right. I think we could really do some great things with that. So let's try to see if we can have some fun with this now. Um, okay. So how do we begin to assess uh, what students really need? Right. I mean, I appreciate your candor that uh, you're, you're you have a projection of what you think that they need. But uh, what 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 how do we find useful intel? You know, who, who do we need to listen to and why? You know, who, who are the voices that are the most hardest to find uh, and, and listen to? What, let's talk a little bit about this. What, what can we assess better uh, as we investigate the, the needs of, of student populations so that they don't feel suppressed? Well, I, you know, here's the thing. I think we're staring the obvious right in the face. Um, the students are your key constituent group. And yet I think often we find in higher education across the board, the last people to be consulted, to be discussed with, to be talked with, to be asked, how can we help? Are who? Students. So, you know, we can do focus groups and all that kind of good stuff, but it's, it's, it's also in the informal discussions, the, the opening up to um, uh, being transparent, but also being open to receiving in an informal way uh, negative reactions, uh, you know, ideas for uh, improving the experience overall of students and their own experiences. I have found, I'll tell you, for example, that we've started these frequent departmental meetings where I'll come and just listen to students and, and we'll chat for an hour. We'll give them some updates, talk through that. But if there are anything, if there is anything that they want to bring up, um, we're, it's an informal opportunity to just have coffee and, and talk with one another. That has been as invaluable to me as the more formal student success surveys that we send out uh, or the engagement that we have. It's also breaking the staff and faculty out of the, the normal traditional office, if you will, and getting them in and talking with students in a different way, creating more open-ended questions and, and cultivating uh, greater knowledge around what's out there uh, and what the students are thinking. That said, I mentioned earlier that, you know, in higher education, you know, in terms of the stifling of creativity, it's not just these institutions that are you know, kind of to at fault. It, all of us have a part to play in that. And I think parents, um, partners, the community need to be engaged in ways that we have not done a good job at engaging. Like we were talking with a community group, like what is it recently? And, and, and <laughs> I asked, what are we not doing well? Like, what could we be doing better to support you? And, and um, this was a while back. And they said, well, 
universities just come in and tell us, this is what we're doing. This is how we're going to do it. And then we never hear from them again. Mm-hmm. We'd like to actually be treated as partners, as, you know, engaged community members rather than as recipients of whatever it is you're doing to us. So I think listening, cultivating, and then acting, um, and then assessing, you know, you mentioned the term assessment, which is big in higher education. We need to assess whether that action is, is helping, uh, whether that action is making inroads in terms of the work that we're doing and then changing course and admitting if it's a failure, right? I, I think sometimes we, you know, we don't want to admit failure. And so we just keep, you know, doing the definition of insanity, which is doing the same thing over and over again. And so rather than shifting course and making changes and adjustments, um, you know, I think we, we, we find ourselves, uh, you know, kind of doing that, uh, this, the wrong thing over and over again. So I think those are kind of the pieces uh, that factor into that. And I would say students are central, vital to all of uh, the, the, the work that we need to be doing and advancing a, a better uh, university for the future, a more personalized university. You know, uh, Nathan, what, why do you think that it took a pandemic to, to validate that we've really never been student-centered? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, because... Good question. Look, That's fair, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a fair question. And um, why is it, I mean, that we're now starting to learn what student-centricity should really mean? Glenn, I, I, you know, it's a, it's a fabulous question. I, I need to write about it now, I think, you know, and, and kind of get some thoughts out about that. But, you know, just kind of off the top of my head and, and what I've observed is that during the pandemic and the lack of human touch, you know, so we've all been virtual. We're virtual right now. Um, the reality is we came to understand what we valued most was that human connectivity. And when you get to the point of student centricity, I think all of us were trying to figure out like, how do we salvage this, right? How do we help our students make it? Like all the psychological trauma, the sociologically induced traumas as a result of the pandemic, the political maelstrom that was out there and still is uh, for that matter, uh, that, that is, really impactful on on students and their experience colleges and universities and i want to give a shout out to all of my peers around the country we're doing incredible work to support students in such beautiful uh thoughtful in-depth ways coming in and saying how can we help how can we ensure that you're okay and i think we we responded collectively as an industry as a sector uh, admirably. But I think to your point, it took a pandemic to get us to rethink the model, to do it differently, to do it better, to create different access points that weren't traditionally there. So case in point, you have all these faculty members who said five years ago, there is no way we can do online learning. Students need to come into campus. It's, you know, that's just the way it is. This is how it's always been and how it always will be. And what the pandemic taught us is that in reality, we can do virtualized learning and create greater access for students and provide them quality support uh, in ways that many of these faculty and administrators who thought it could never be done was done. 
And so we found ourselves in a unique, at a unique point, a nexus point around innovation and moving where we should have been 10, 15 years ago to support greater educational outcomes. So to that end, I would just say, I, I think it's a great question and one that needs further exploration, but I think it, it forced our hand if, at the end of the day. Uh, so how do, what do we need to do to interrupt the model? What do we need to do to interrupt the model? Doesn't this begin with uh, a recognition that maybe we were solving for the wrong opportunities, much like you mentioned before, but what are the skills that we need uh, as faculty members, as administrators, as in what role does leadership play in higher education? How do you see it interrupting? That's a fabulous question. I don't think I have the whole answer here, but I can offer some insights, right? So I think one of the things we have learned is, and, and it's a no-brainer in some ways, but it's one that is so important, adaptability, I mean, and flexibility. Those are the two that come directly to mind. and. Higher education is is well over a thousand years in, old, right? And so, adaptability and flexibility is not part of our DNA as a collective sector. And so, we need to lean into that even more now than ever. And you're seeing really super traditional institutions. My daughter happens to attend a school uh, over in the United Kingdom, <laughs> very traditional institution has now upended the entire apple cart and they've gone completely virtual for the last year and a half. And they're like, this is amazing. Look at what we can do and we can create greater access. And so they've created a, or they're creating a culture of adaptability and flexibility. Mm. I think the other thing that comes to mind is as administrators and leaders of institutions, we have to incentivize that. We have to create the opportunities and the conditions to support faculty innovation. Um, I believe I am surrounded by some amazing faculty colleagues at Saybrook, um, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, we have had people rising to the occasion for 50 years and more, but over the last year and a half, we've seen like this. I, I've been inspired to see the work that's been done across our institution in terms of supporting students, and so it can be done, and, and we can incentivize that more and more, not just in money, but in recognition in, in creating spaces for faculty to do more in professional development. And those, again, they don't sound sexy probably to the external listener, but they're important to our faculty. It, it inspires them to continue to do more and to give more. How, uh, how do we incentivize uh, administrators and faculty members to ensure that they don't go back to old ways of thinking? I mean, have you ever considered that? I think you have to incentivize those who are doing the work. Um, so I'll get to your question um, first. You have to, there's going to be a smaller cadre of people that are going to do the heavier lifting. And those folks have to be incentivized at the front end. And I think university leadership needs to be courageous. Um, and that's, that sounds kind of, uh, I guess, maybe a little overly dramatic. But in this day and age, the hardest thing to do is say, no, we're not doing that. We're moving forward. And because of the, the DNA of higher education being so, uh, so against uh, adaptability and flexibility, let me just say that, 
I think it's really, really incumbent upon university leadership and administrators now more than ever to say, let's go, let's keep moving this forward. Let's, and we've got to, and here's why. It's not just about enrollment. It's not just about revenues. It's about the students. And it doesn't mean we have to do or go uh, all in one way. There's opportunities to explore and be creative. So is it just about virtual learning? No. Is it just about all on-ground learning? Absolutely not. But why don't we put our heads together and find new vistas, new ways of educating, new ways of delivering um, uh, you know, courses through micro-credentials and nano-credentialing and, and getting super creative and, and collaborative with uh, businesses and other institutions of higher learning. Um, so that's how you, you got to start and incentivize at a smaller scale, I think. Um, and then over time, it becomes part of the culture. Now, that's just my own theory, I, but I think we've been successful or we're getting more successful as we go with some failures here and there. So, so as we close, uh, Nathan, give us a sense of how higher education needs to pivot. You know, how, what's it going to take to, uh, to get us out of this mindset that incrementalism is okay, but we, we need to be on a trans uh, on a journey towards more transformative leaps. How are we going to get there? What, what do you think would be a transformative leap for higher ed? So I think there's a couple different takeaways. The first is radical cooperation or, you know, really depthful co-collaboration. Don't shy away from it. Lean into it. When you're most fearful of it, that probably means it's the right thing to do. Um, and I think university administrators and leadership and faculty members, the more you collaborate, the more you engage, the better it will be. I think the second thing around, uh, or the second item when it comes to the takeaways is that we need to start really hearing, not just listening to, but hearing our students, our constituents. And and really sitting in with them in the fire. We have this phrase here at Sabre called sitting in the fire. And, and what that ultimately means is whether it's good or bad or intense, you're sitting in it, you're dealing with it, you're understanding, you're absorbing it. And then from there, you're taking it away and you're figuring out with them and in, in collaboration with your community, how you can make things better. And I think those are, those are two of the major takeaways. And then the third um, I think is that, you, you know, be courageous in your leadership decisions and don't be afraid to buck the trend, incentivize, you know, but, but in some ways you're also going to have to pull people along, whether or not you incentivize them to make a difference. And, and at the end of the day, your marketplace is going to determine that for us. Higher education is seeing some of its greatest trials and tribulations in 150 years. Why? because the marketplace is questioning the value of higher education. And if we're not willing to listen to it, it doesn't mean we have to respond to every criticism or every piece of it, but if we're not listening and trying to adjust and figure out how we can create greater access, create you know, more affordable degree programs uh, or greater value degree programs, sometimes it's not an affordability, it's a value issue, yeah. um, we're going to be left behind and our, our market's going to go elsewhere. So let me, I'll throw in one more question. Yeah. How is your leadership going to evolve in the next five years, Nathan? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know. I think if the trajectory stays the course, it's going to continue to be more open 
than close. And by more open, I mean um, a greater sense of collective team leadership versus I am the president, we are the team, you know, and you are the team and we're going to execute in this way. And I think that's going to be vital as we move forward into our future here at Saybrook. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I was a go it aloneer, you know, like we'll just, you know, punch our way through. Um, and for me, the value of working with a team, it, 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 I get kind of emotionally verklempt <laughs> when I think about um, just what a wonderful leadership team I'm surrounded by in terms of the work we do on behalf of students every day. And that to me is inspiring. And so why would I want to do away with that? I'd rather cultivate that and get better at it as a leader myself, because I have a long journey ahead of me left and I want to keep getting better and advancing. Well, look, at, I know that was a tough question. And the reason I ask it is that we've reached the, the state now where leaders need to learn how to lead all over again. Yeah. And one of the most Great. fundamental uh, realizations that I'm hoping that leaders uh, hold on to is you can't go at leadership alone. Uh, today, the ability to be more inclusive, to see and know the people that you lead, uh, the ability to um, see opportunities in everything and work with this generous purpose where we're more sharing and giving and finding ways to value relationships and um, create a more humanistic uh, touch with those that we lead uh, is going to be crucial because everyone's going uh, to be on this journey and it's not going to be easy. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we're going to get to where we need to go is by uh, recognizing that we're going to need each other more than ever. So I, I love the fact that you already know that. I hope that others can continue to learn uh, that they need to be thinking this way, uh, because in the end, um, we're transitioning from a knowledge-based to wisdom-based economy, Nathan. It's no longer just about what you know, but what you do with what you know. And I appreciate okay. your time today. Uh, you've been wonderful. And uh, let's continue to uh, have these conversations. In fact, I'd encourage you uh, to share this podcast with your staff. Uh, and have a conversation about it. And I hope that the people that are listening now can take this podcast with them and share it with their teams, because this is a discussion of vulnerability, of uncertainty, and finding ways to create greater readiness. And I appreciate uh, your candor. And uh, again, thanks for being on the show. And as we uh, leave each show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence has quit. Nathan, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate your time today. Thank you, Glenn. Really appreciate it. It was great. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, Change is merely substitution, not evolution.